It's a joy to be with you again this morning, Redeemer Church. Uh, about 27 years ago on a Sunday evening, I was preaching about in this spot, actually a little bit further over there because this used to be a divided chancel in this, uh, in this building. And about 27 years ago, I was preaching the first sermon that I preached in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and so I always love to be back in this place, but especially because of the people who are gathered here. And I, I was thinking as, as these brothers kindly introduced me to you earlier in the service this morning that I always get a whole lot more blessing than I can possibly give you just by being with you. So thank you for encouraging me. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to John 4, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I've been giving attention to this passage uh, over the last year or so, looking at it from various angles, and we cannot begin to scrape the surface of the riches that are in John 4. It would take an entire sermon series to do justice to the passage, but I do want you to see five things this morning as we look at John 4, and we're going to concentrate just on the first 26 verses, and really only through the first half of the 26th verse. There's a lot in this passage. Let me tell you five things I'd like you to be looking for as we get ready to read the passage. One, I want you to look at how God is the one who is seeking in this passage. God is the one who is seeking. Uh, two, I want you to see that Jesus has come in this passage for blessing. So God is seeking and Jesus is coming for blessing Third, that doesn't mean, however, that he's not willing to confront this woman of her sins. So he, he comes seeking and he comes blessing, but he also comes confronting. And then he comes teaching. There's good Bible teaching in this passage. When he makes this woman aware of her sin, he immediately begins teaching and then there's, of course, the glorious saving that he does in this passage. And we see that especially at the end of the passage when she comes to a realization of who Jesus is and she trusts in him. So be on the lookout for those things even as we read, seeking, blessing, confronting, teaching, and saving. And let's pray before we read God's word and ask for his help and blessing. Heavenly Father, this is your word, the Grass withers and the flowers fade and fall, but your word stands forever. And your word is the way you sanctify us. Sanctify us by truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching reproof, correction, training in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from this journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must 
worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. This is the most important conversation on the subject of worship in the history of the world. Jesus is going to articulate some things in this passage about the worship of God that are important for every human being on this planet to understand. He is going to touch on matters of vital, spiritual, and eternal significance. And he is going to do it with a woman who is morally questionable at best. By the way, let me just pause right there. Is that not a picture of grace? That this conversation would be had with this woman. It, it's a real testimony to the grace of God. You, you can't get past that thought without realizing the grace of God. You know, I, if, if I could reverently imagine the angels in heaven when they hear that Jesus is going to be having this conversation with a woman at the well in Samaria, I can imagine them saying amongst themselves, don't, don't you, the Lord, don't you think this, would, this conversation would be better for you to have, say, with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration? I mean, surely those would be more worthy conversation partners if you're going to have the most important conversation in the history of the world about worship. I mean, after all, you are going to be meeting them on the Mount of Transfiguration. That would give you the great prophet Moses, the lawgiver, and it would give you the great later prophet, Elijah, who is going to come before the end. Wouldn't those be the better people to have this conversation with? No, I, I, I think this woman who is morally questionable, who is a Samaritan, would be a better person to have that conversation with. Is that not a glorious thing? You know, don't, don't think that what you have done in life puts you beyond the reach of God's grace. If, if God can have this conversation with this woman, he can get anybody. And by the way, that's the, the big backstory in this whole conversation is that God has sent his son seeking and he sent his son seeking this woman. And again, if I can reverently imagine in the councils of eternity before the world was created, the father and the son having a conversation and the son saying, Father, I want to go seek her. I want to go seek her and I want to bring her home to you. I want, 
I want to bring her home so she loves you and worships you more than anything else in this world. I want to bring her from her lost condition and from her sin. I want to bring her out of her darkness and into your light. And the, and the father says to the son, go get her, son. Go get her. And it, it's, it, I don't think it's a mistake. You know, when, when you read this story, what, what do you start thinking about, especially when you see that this happens at Jacob's well? Well, you remember the story of the seeking of the wives for both Isaac and Jacob in the book of Genesis. And where does that happen? At wells. Remember that? Where do they find them? They find them at wells drawing water. Except Jesus isn't looking for a wife for himself. He, as the bridegroom, is looking for his bride, the church, to bring her to God at this well in the middle of the day in Samaria. It's a really, it's a remarkable scene, isn't it? And I want you to see five things in this passage. And the first thing is simply this. God is the one who is seeking here. God is the one who is seeking here. And you see this in a couple of ways very explicitly in the passage. The first, notice in verse 4. I love this tiny little verse. In the English Standard Version it reads, and he had to pass through Samaria. I love the King James. Anybody remember the King James of this passage? And he must needs go through Samaria. That's how the, don't you love the King James? And he must needs go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria is what the King James is saying. Now, Geographically and logistically, that's not true. In fact, most Jews, when they were going from Judea to Galilee or from Galilee to Judea, did not go through Samaria. They went around Samaria because they considered the Samaritans unclean. They were heretics. You know, they, they had their own version of the Bible. They had changed part of the Pentateuch. Uh, to fit their own particular approach to religion, uh, they had mixed in with the population during the time of the exile, the, the Gentile population there in Judea, and so they were considered sort of uh, religious half-breeds, and the, the pure-blooded Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so the, the reason why they normally went around Samaria to, was, was to avoid ritual uncleanness. The idea was even if you sat down and had a meal with a Samaritan, you would become ritually unclean uh, because these are, these are half-breeds and uh, th these are unclean, uh, unfaithful people. But when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, it's not because logistics and geography necessitated it. There were other ways that he could have gone from Judea to Galilee. The reason he had to go there is because of this woman. He was seeking. He was seeking her. And, and don't you love what he says later in the passage? Uh, look at verse 23. For such people the Father seeks 
to be his worshipers. Now that is, that's remarkable because the whole conversation is about this woman and her people, the Samaritans. And Jesus makes it clear that the Father is seeking even them to be his worshipers. You know, a, a, a pure-blooded Jew might say, well, the Father's seeking us to be his worshipers, but he's not seeking you, Samaritans, to be his worshipers. You're heretics and half-breeds. Nope. Jesus says, the Father, dear woman, is seeking you and your people to be his worshipers. So in this passage, it's very clear that the Father is seeking and the Son is seeking this people and this woman. And just pause for a second and realize what that means for you and me. It means that God is seeking you more than you're seeking him. God cares about your soul more than you care about your soul. He's not sitting back waiting for you to get interested in him. He is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Understand, the world is not divided up between people who are worshiping and people who are not. Everybody in this world is worshiping. The question is, what are you worshiping? Some people are worshiping themselves. Some people are worshiping their jobs or their wealth or sex or a status or a reputation or their bodies. There are all sorts of things that people are out there worshiping, but everybody is worshiping. The, the world is not divided between people who are worshiping and people who are not. The world is divided between people who are worshiping the one true God and people who are worshiping something else. <laughs> everybody is worshiping. And what the Father is doing is seeking people to worship him. Why? Because the Father loves us and cares about us. We were created to worship Him. If we worship, if we worship anything else other than Him, we will become smaller. Why? Because the prophets teach you, you become like what you worship. Remember, that, that's what Isaiah says about idol worship. The problem with idol worship is you become like the idol that you worship. And the idol that you worship isn't alive, and it can't speak, and it can't move, and it can't do anything. And when you worship an idol, you become like an idol. But when you worship the one true and living God, you become like what God created you to be in the first place, which is his image in this world. So when you worship the one true God, you become more. But when you worship idols you become less because you become like what you worship. And the Father, because he loves us, is seeking us. He doesn't want us to be drowned in idolatry. He, does, he doesn't want us to be diminished in idolatry. He doesn't want us to be destroyed by idolatry. And so he's seeking worshipers who will worship him because that's what we were created for. What, what does Paul say in Ephesians 1 that we were created and redeemed for? In love, we were predestined to the adoptions and so, of sons to what? To the praise of his glory. 
We were created and saved and adopted to the praise of God's glory. That's our purpose in life. We're here to worship him. We're to live, we're to be to the praise of his glory. And the Father is seeking people who will get that, who will understand that, and who will live that out. They'll worship him. They'll praise him. They'll live for his glory instead of living for our own glory. What what does Paul say in Romans 1 is our big problem. We worship the creature rather than the creator. You see, it's not that some people worship and other people don't. It's that some people worship the creature rather than the creator. And what is God seeking? He's seeking you to worship the creator, not the creature. Because ironically, the only way the creature can be happy is if the creature is worshiping the creator. If you worship the creature, it'll destroy you. If you worship the creator, it will bless you and fulfill you and satisfy you. And the father, because he loves us, is seeking people who will worship him. So, you know, we may be looking for love in all the wrong places. We may be seeking security in all the wrong places. We may be seeking satisfaction in all the wrong places, but the father is seeking us. And in this passage, you see it. Jesus is, he doesn't have to go through Samaria. There are other ways that he could have gone. But he went there because he had to, not because of logistical necessity, not because of geographical necessity, but because he was on a mission. And he was on a mission to the Samaritans, and he was on a mission especially to this woman. So don't Forget when you read this passage that it's God who is seeking. It's Jesus who is seeking. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Jesus is coming to bless this woman, not to curse her. You remember back in John chapter 3 when Jesus is having that conversation with Nicodemus when he says the famous Bible verse that is probably the first Bible verse that most of us memorize, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. In that conversation, one of the things that he says to Nicodemus is what? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. And it's so apparent in this passage that Jesus' fundamental purpose in this conversation with this woman is not to condemn her, but to bless her. And you see that in lots of ways. One is the way that he addresses her. Uh, For instance, look at verse 21. Uh, Woman... Believe me, an hour is coming. Now, he he addresses her as woman. Now, let's pause there for a second. This is after he has already divulged that he knows that she is living immorally with a man. And yet he addresses her with this formal address, woman. Now, you know, that word in Southernese, that word, you know, sometimes we, woman, Bring me my slippers, okay, that that you can hear. That's not how Jesus is saying 
this word. This is exactly how he had addressed his mother two chapters previously. It is a, this is a formal, respectful address. Now, just take that in. I will guarantee you that this woman had been called some names in her town. You know, her town was not big enough to hide the fact that she had been married five times and was living with a man. I guarantee you, certainly behind her back and probably to her face, she had been called some things that I will not even name in polite company with children in the room right now. And yet Jesus, even after divulging her questionable moral state, uh, essentially speaks to her. Now, here, here's a Southernese term that we use. We'll say what? Ma'am, won't we? When you want to be polite, yes, ma'am. That's how he, he speaks to her in a way that is honoring of her. Wow. So, you know, this Jewish guy who has just told her, a Sumerian woman, that she's sinfully immoral, says, ma'am, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father. So it, even in the way he speaks to her, it's clear that he wants her good, not her ill, her blessing, not her cursing. He comes to bless her, not to condemn her. We, we even see that in the way that he confronts her of her sin. And that's, that's the next thing I want you to see. Notice that he, he doesn't gloss over her sin. He, he, he comes to bless her. But in order to bless her, he cannot avoid addressing her sin. In, in the conversation, uh, after he offers her the living water, uh, he says to her, okay, I'll, I'll tell you how you can get this living water. But first, go call your husband and tell him to come here, and I'll tell both of you. Now, I, I think there are a couple of things going on there. If you read this passage, it, it is... It is like the marital passages with Isaac and Jacob in the Old Testament. And it would have been entirely possible for this woman to get the wrong impression of what Jesus was doing. And I, I think one of the reasons he says, go call your husband, is not just because he's wanting to disclose to her her sin. I think he's also making it clear to her, I'm not trying to get something out of you, ma'am. This is not a come on on my part. I'm not trying to pick you up. So get, go get your husband and bring him here. In, in other words, I, I think he's saying to her, many of the men that you have known in the past have been asking the question, what can I get out of her? And I'm not here to get something out of you. I'm here to give you something. I, I'm, I'm here to bless you. And... And so he says, go, go get your husband and bring him here. But of course, he, he knows what's going on in this woman's life. And he knows what her marital status is or isn't. 
And so he puts his finger, what, what? Right on for her, the issue in her life regarding worship. And, and he, he confronts her in her sin. But isn't it an amazingly gentle way in which he does it? He, he simply, he asks a question to which she gives him an honest but not fully disclosing answer to which he follows up with full disclosure. I don't have a husband. You are absolutely right, ma'am. You do not have a husband. Because you've had five of them, and the man that you're living with now, you're not married to. So he, he confronts her in her sin, but even the way he does it, it, it it's clear that he, she, he's already established to this woman that he wants her blessing, that, that he wants her to be blessed. You know, he, he speaks to her with dignity. He tells her about water that will give her eternal life that he wants to give to her. She, she has already begun to build confidence in this man that he actually cares about her best interests. And even the way he speaks to her about her sin confirms that. You have spoken truly that you are not married, that you don't have a husband because you're living with a man right now and you've been married five times. Now, I, I don't know exactly what that means. There are a couple of ways we can read what's going on. It, it could be that Jesus is using husband as a play on word with man. You don't have a man now. You've had five men and you're not married to this man. It could be that Jesus is accusing her of being a serial adulteress or a serial fornicator. Or it, it could be that she was legitimately married five times and either those husbands died or she was divorced. In those days, it was the men that did the divorcing. In our day, women are more often, in the, in the day of no-fault divorce, women are more likely to do the divorcing. But in, in Jesus' day, there, there weren't many opportunities for a woman to do divorcing. The men were usually the ones who did that. So if, if she was a five-time divorcee, she conceivably could have been the victim in that. Um, so I, I don't know which way exactly to read what's going on in the passage, but I do know this. In the, in the, she is in a morally questionable situation. In fact, she's, she's doing what she shouldn't do. She's living with a man that she's not married to. And her community would have looked upon her as immoral because in those days, the rabbis uh, didn't believe that you should be married more than three times even if your spouse had died. So the, the, the fact that she has been involved perhaps in five marriages would have put her in a, in a situation of being morally questionable in the eyes of her community, no matter what her present status is. And so Jesus confronts her with that reality. Now, why, why is that important? I, I, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One is, 
our dearest sins compromise the possibility of our worshiping God because we relish those sins more than we relish God. Even if those sins are killing us. You know, we, we find our satisfaction in those things more than we find our satisfaction in God. In every sin, we play out Genesis 3 all over again. You know, when the, when the serpent says, you know, the, the reason that God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit is because he knows that if you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like him. In other words, the serpent is saying to Eve and to Adam, if you disobey God, you will become more than you are now. And of course, when they disobey God, do they become more? No, they do not become more. They become less. They, they become less like God, not more like God. Because disobedience doesn't make you more like God. But that's every sin promises that. You know, Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm not confident that you'll provide for me. And, and so I need to take this money that's not mine. Or I need to take, cheat on my taxes because I, I'm not sure that you'll provide for me. So I've got to do this in order to take care of myself because I'm not sure you'll take care of me. Or, or Lord, I'm, I'm not sure I'll, I'll really be fulfilled and happy in this marriage. And so I'm going to do something that you tell me not to do in order that I can be fulfilled. Every sin works like that. It, it promises satisfaction, but it cannot deliver. And the more we love that sin, the more we invest ourselves in finding our satisfaction and happiness in that sin, the more we are cut off from being able to worship God. So this is why Jesus is talking about this, because whatever the case is, whether this woman is a serial fornicator or whether she's been in five marriages and she's been the victim of divorce or whether her husbands have died and now she's living with a man, either way, you, you know in the passage that she has tried to find her security in life in these relationships with men. And it's, it's failing her, right? No matter what, whether she's an adulteress or whether she's just in a situation where she's lost husband after husband, it's not working for her. That's where she's... She's tried to find her security in life there. And, and Jesus is saying to her, we've got to address that before you're able to worship God. So he, he confronts her with her sin, but he's so kind in the way that he does it. You know, he's, he's not foaming at the mouth and he's face is all red and he's spitting everywhere. He, he, he speaks to her about her sin in a way that she knows that he genuinely cares about her. It's very uncomfortable for her and I think she tries to change the subject. There, there, are, there are debates about this passage. What, when, when she says, I perceive that, by the way, it's a very funny line. You're right, ma'am. You, you, you don't have a husband. You've been married five times and you're living with a guy. I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> it's, it's, I, the Bible is very funny. Uh, and then she says, our father said, this mountain is where you're supposed to worship. You Jews say Jerusalem is where you're supposed to worship. Which is it? 
Now, that to me looks like a total redirect. She is trying to get him off of her case and onto some sort of a theological argument so that he will stop meddling in her life. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus, this is exactly why he came to Samaria. He wanted to talk with her about worship. She has just walked right into his plan. She thinks she's getting him off of her back. This is actually what she, he wanted to talk to her about. He wanted to talk to her about worship. And she thinks she's getting him off the subject and onto something else because every Jew she's ever known has sort of wagged his finger in her face or in the face of her people and said, you people are a bunch of heretics. You worship in the wrong place. You people are going to hell. We're much better. That's, that's what she's experienced from Jewish people. And, and his response is remarkable. He ends up having a deep, respectful disagreement with her on the issue of where to worship. And, and I think she, she's got to be sitting there. I have never had a conversation like this with a Jew before. Because, I mean, get this. One, she's a Samaritan. Whom, whom the Jews look down on theologically. Two, she's a woman. And in, in her day and age, the idea of a rabbi having a deep theological conversation with a woman about worship, that, that is it, certainly a Samaritan woman. And Jesus is sitting here taking her seriously. You know, it's, it's as if his response, you know, she's thinking, oh man, he's going to start foaming at the mouth and I'll just kind of slip away while he's foaming at the mouth. He responds to her and he says, you know, ma'am, you raise a really good question. I'd like to talk with you about that. Let me explain what, what, what I want you to understand the, the, the reasons why Jews and Samaritans do what they do. I want you to understand the theological, biblical underpinnings of this argument. I want, you to know, I want you to understand why Samaritans do what they do. I want you to understand why Jews what they do what they do. And he, he will eventually say to her, and by the way, you Samaritans are wrong and the Jews are right. But, but the reason is rooted in the Bible. It's not rooted in prejudice. It's, it's not rooted in contempt. It's not rooted in ethnic purity. It's, it's rooted in God's revelation. The reason why this is the wrong place to worship and the reason why Jerusalem is the right way place to worship is because of what the Bible says. There's a reason for that. And, and there's a reason behind that. The reason is the only way you can worship the true God is how he tells you to worship him. Otherwise, how do you worship a spirit? Have you ever thought about that? How do you worship a spirit? And the, the, the part of the answer has to be um, however he tells you to. Because otherwise, you, where do you, how do you know where to go to find a spirit? How do you know what a spirit wants? The only way is if that spirit discloses himself to you because you can't see a spirit. You don't know where the spirit is. You, you don't know what to do unless the spirit discloses to you what he wants you to do. And what does Jesus say in this passage? God is spirit. And therefore, the only way you can worship him is in spirit and truth. In other words, you have to worship a spirit 
the way the Spirit tells you to worship Him. And where is that? Right there, the Bible, where He has spoken to you and told you what He wants you to do in worship. And so His confrontation of her sin moves into a season of teaching where he teaches her, look, you've got to understand what the Bible teaches about worship if you want to be a true worshiper. God is seeking you, even you, Samaritan woman, even you, half-breed heretic Samarians, God is seeking you to be his worshipers. But you've got to understand, if you're going to worship him in spirit and truth, you've got to worship him according to his word. You've got to do exactly what he says in his word if you want to meet with God and engage with him. Because worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. So the only way that you can worship God is on his terms and in the way that he makes possible. And so he has this deep conversation with this woman. And, and let me say, furthermore, she knows a lot and she appears to know more than a lot of Samarians knew. We know the Samaritans were looking for a prophet like Moses to come again in the end. But we also know that most of the Samaritans were not looking for a Messiah, certainly not a Messiah like Jesus. Now, of course, we also know that the Jews were not looking for a Messiah like Jesus. They were looking for a Messiah, but more for a political Messiah. And, and Jesus wasn't the political Messiah that they were expecting. And when she said, look at what she says at the end of this conversation. She says, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. Wow. Where did that come from? That is one of the things I'm going to ask Jesus in heaven. Lord, tell me, and maybe I'll find her first and say, tell me about that conversation. How did you know that? Because most of your contemporaries, I don't think, would have either known that or believed that. But, but she says, I know Messiah is coming. And, and furthermore, look what else she says. Look again at verse 25. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Is that cool? She says, I agree with you, Jesus. When that one comes, he's going to make everything clear. He's going to explain everything. He's going to settle everything. There's not going to be a spat between Jews and Samaritans anymore. He's going to clear all of this up, and we're all going to know how to worship right. How does she know that? That's amazing. It's an amazing conversation. But the, this, this, this whole teaching session that he has with her, is meant to emphasize to her the only way you can worship God is in the way that he tells you to worship in his word and in the way that he makes possible, which is through the Christ. It's through the Christ that you worship him. Um, even his contrast. I tell, you remember what he says to you? I tell you, look at verse 23, an hour is coming when true worshipers will worship, look at verse 21, neither in this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem. Now that's, you know, the, the Jews said Jerusalem is the right place because what? The temple is there. And the Samaritans said Samaria is the right place because here's where Ebal and Gerizim and, and, uh, and this is where uh, Jeroboam set up the, the, the calves and he didn't want people to go down to Jerusalem and, and worship there because it would draw away their uh, loyalties. And so he says, neither of these places are where we're going to worship. Well, where are you going to worship? You're going to worship in the Messiah. You're going to worship in me. The place where you're going to meet God is not going to be in Samaria. It's not going to be in Jerusalem. It's going to be in me. That's where you're going to meet God. I was sent so that you could meet God. And the place that you meet God is in me. And that's why her comments at the end in verse 25 are so remarkable. She, she essentially says to him, I know you're right. It, Messiah is going, I know Messiah is coming. Messiah is going to explain all this. The Messiah is going to be the one in whom we meet God. And then what does Jesus say to her? That's me. You are talking to the Messiah. And here's what happens. She believes him. And notice two things that happen. One is, he teaches her what the Bible says about the worship of God and Messiah. And she believes that. And then he says, I am the Messiah. And she puts her trust in him. So notice two things happen. She believes the Bible and she trusts in him. And what happens? Boom! She's saved. Right there. Boom! Her life is changed instantaneously transformed. Why? Because of the truth of God and the person of Jesus. They come together and she believes and she trusts and she's saved. Now, th this, this is a glorious thing because Jesus has actually predicted earlier in this conversation that this is how the conversation is going to end. 